from Matthew chapter 5. You can stand as I read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now pray. God, again, thank you for um, your word and for what you have revealed here of your life and of your ways. We're reminded, God, that, that you've said in your word that, that your ways are not ours. And we would pray, God, that that would not be true that you would work in us, that as we've read here of what your ways are, that we would yield to you, God, and trust you to bring about in us that perfect conformity to your very life and being, that people could see us and know you, know what you, who you are and what you're like, and be drawn to you. So we thank you, God, for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us and minister to us as we need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I appreciate Peter Reed filling in for me last week. Um, not filling in for me, I was here, but just it was great to, to hear from him. We've been going through here the, the Sermon on the Mount, and right from the beginning, if you recall, we saw that the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I've been arguing that Christ's intention in this sermon is two things. One is to lay out for us what the constitution of his kingdom is, what he expects from his people. But the other is to raise the bar so high that we would see that we cannot fulfill it in our own. And then it would bring about that poverty of spirit where we make ourselves simply available to him as empty vessels for him to accomplish the conformity to his life that he's looking for. And so again, this is true here. He's this he has, is giving now six statements where he says, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you. The first three pertain to murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you. And the next two pertain to adultery. And now the fourth, but I say to you, is here in verse 33. 
and it has to do with vows and being people of our word, being people of integrity. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. That's very straightforward, no lying. God is not a liar. He absolutely forbids lying. He will never condone it, never. And so the scripture is very straightforward on this, don't make a false vow. But what the people were doing in order to get around this is they were trying to elevate and, and lower different kinds of vows. They were categorizing vows, and they said some vows are more binding than another. And Jesus just cuts through all that and says, no, it's, it's, that's nonsense. Every vow is binding. Your word should be your oath, your bond, no matter whether you've sworn a, a vow per se or not. When we were kids growing up, um, I remember seeing it on movies, and, and our parents drilled it into us, and not just our parents, but other kids' parents in the neighborhood. And that was, and they meant well, but it wasn't very a good lesson. In fact, it was against what Jesus is saying here. And that was, our parents would say to us, it's okay if you say something to your brother or your sister, but if you say the words, I give my word of honor, and you don't do it, then you're in trouble. Now, I understand what they were saying is that you should be kids of your word, and your word is your bond, and if you can't be trusted, then, 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 then what's good is your life, basically. And integrity is so, so vitally important. But to say to us that formula, I give my word of honor, is more sacred than other things that you might say is a bad idea. It's that thing that Jesus is getting at. The better thing to instill in our kids is whether you say, I promise, or you say, my word of honor, it's just if you've said it, it ought to be binding. Whether you invoke the formula, I promise, or any other formula shouldn't matter. So Jesus says in verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. It's interesting what Jesus is doing here because it appears that the Pharisees, as they were giving um, structure to vows and what was a significant vow and what was not, these things of vowing by heaven, by, vowing by earth, vowing by Jerusalem were viewed to be lesser vows or less binding than other vows might be. And so basically Jesus is cutting the legs out from under this and he was saying even these lesser so-called vows, the vows that are not as binding as other vows, that's just nonsense because he says, when you vow by heaven, you are vowing by the throne of God. When you vow, vow by earth, you are vowing by, vowing by the footstool of his feet. When you vow by Jerusalem, you are vowing by the city of the great king. So these so-called insignificant vows, less binding vows, are just the opposite. They are binding. You should not do it. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I guess this was before hair dye. Um, but the idea being is that we cannot will for our hair to turn white or turn black. We don't have any control over it in that sense. Verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. Isn't it great having young children in your life or grandchildren? Man, I tell you, they are just they are eagle eyes looking for um, um, lack of integrity or untruth. When we have one of, my, one of our grandkids, he's, he's several times, he, he's 
when I've been teasing about something. That's a lie. And I'm going, no, that's teasing. There's a difference between teasing and a lie. You know, so I'm trying to help him here. You know, you're going to hear a lot of teasing from me and other people throughout your life. It's not going to help you to say, that's a lie. You know, you need to learn there's, there's such a thing as sense of humor. There's satire. There's funny. But you know, I mean, one time I was driving down the interstate, on the, probably on the way to church, and one of our kids was sitting in the back seat behind me in his car seat, probably only three, four years old. And he can't even see the, the speedometer and he, and he doesn't even really understand what speed limits are, but I hear him from right directly behind me saying, Dad, you're driving too fast. And I said, how do you know that? He says, because I'm looking at the stripes, and they're going by a lot faster than they normally do. <laughs> wow. So, we, so God gives us these little miniature consciences around us um, to, to help us and, but what they're on the lookout for, they understand it at a very young age, is how important truthfulness is, how important integrity is. You really can't overstate it. I, my boys were, were in their Little League baseball days. They were making friends with people in the town, and there was one boy in particular, nice kid, nice family, but it just something about the character of that boy, it just seemed like everything that came out of his mouth was untrue. I didn't understand why. And it, was, it would have been, and I'm, I'm sure the parents were working with him, but I thought how alarming it is and disconcerting to see at such a young age that a child is so prone to lying. Lying when he doesn't even need to. I asked him one time what time it was, and he lied to me. <laughs> and I'm just going, why do you need to lie about things like that? But that brings up another issue. Sometimes we think, well, some lying is justified. It is warranted. I struggle with that, personally. And you've been here for enough time, heard me preach enough over the years, you know that. I understand that Scripture says that all men are liars. That was my favorite vote, vote um, verse to quote to Audrey when she was thinking about, you know, being interested in boys. And I said, they're all liars. You do not want to be interested in them. That includes women. All human beings are liars. But in the kingdom of God, there are no liars. Let me explain that. When we are, we no longer have a sin nature, we're in our glorified bodies, we're with Jesus and His kingdom on earth, we will never utter a lie. You will never hear a glorified saint lie. It'll never happen. Yeah, praise God. And that is because the one who is the truth God is having his way completely with us. It was Augustine, some say Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, he recognized that there is a hierarchy of values. And I agree with that. You can't pick up any book on ethics, to my knowledge, whether secular or, or Christian, that won't affirm a hierarchy of values. The only question will be, what will they put at the list, top of the list, and what will they put at the bottom of the list? 
Augustine put truth at the top of the list. He said truth is absolute, and it is the highest of all values. He pointed out that Satan is the father of lies, not God. And every lie comes from Satan. Men are liars. Satan is the father of lies. And God is the truth. Psalm 51.6 says that God desires truth in the innermost being. Proverbs 6 says that he hates the lying tongue. And Revelation 21.8 says that the lake of fire is the destiny of all liars. Wow. So the reason they were shading the truth, doing these, making these, these elaborate vows and the system of vows that they had, had um, contrived was because they were trying to get away with not being truthful. See, that's the point here. Why, why, why you, know, you know, swearing by Jerusalem or swearing by the one who sits on the throne? Because what the whole intent was to, to, not, just to not be forthright just to shade the truth, hide the truth, in some way be less than forthright. Now, I'm a good Texan, and I have just grown up with the expectation when you ask a person a straight-up question, you should get a straight-up answer. Now, I understand sometimes the question was inappropriate, shouldn't have been asked, and so then the response is, I choose not to answer that question. That's an inappropriate question. It's none of your business. I'm not going to answer you. But the right response is not to shade the truth. It's not to skirt the truth. I asked a man one time, um, and he was being considered for a, a position, and, and so I was trying to get him get, getting to know him. And I knew that he had authored a book, and one of the endorsements on the book was from a man who is very liberal, um, very emergent in his views, um, and anything but um, orthodox, um, pretty heretical in a lot of his views. And this man had put his name on this person's book, and that was alarming to me. And I'm trying to get to know this man, and I couldn't, I said, and so I thought it was a good question. How did that man's name get on your book? What is your relationship with this man? Well, he was evasive, to say the least. Clear question, should have been a simple answer. And he, him, and hawed, and dodged, and weaved, and I asked the question three times and never got a straight answer. So for me, done deal. Not trustworthy. Easy, straight-up question. Should have elicited an easy, straight-up answer. But when I saw that hedging and dodging, I'm going, something's not right here. There's a character issue here. That's what Jesus is getting at. If, you're gonna, if, if any oath has to be given, and sometimes oaths have to be given, it should be to affirm the truth, not to skirt the truth. God makes oaths. He does so for the sake of our encouragement, that we can have confidence that what God has said will come about. God himself makes oaths. He swears by himself. The Holy Spirit given to us is himself 
a promise or an oath of God's faithfulness to us and that He will come again for us. We're told in Psalm 15, those who swear to their own hurt and do it are blessed. Jesus frequently used the statement, truly, truly, I say to you. That was a form of oath. The point is, is that God is not opposed to the promise or to the swearing of its validity. What he is opposed to is that we should that we need that we are the kind of people who need to vow in order to be believed. That's a problem. If nobody's going to believe me unless I say, "Okay, let me put it down on paper. Let me sign my name to it. Let me get witnesses." That's a problem. If nobody can believe me unless I say, "Let me put my hand on the Bible and swear." That's a problem. We should not be that kind of people. Our word, every word that comes from our mouth, ought to be true because God himself is truth. Why did Augustine say that's the highest of all values, the truth? Because it is the characteristic of God. The highest of all values is not the preservation of life. We can make up all kinds of lies for the good intention of wanting to save somebody else's life. So Augustine was very careful. The highest value in life is not the preservation of life. It is the truth. Anybody that we would save by telling a lie will ultimately only die. So the preservation of physical life cannot be higher than eternal truth. Rahab the harlot lied about the hiding of the spies. The two Egyptian midwives lied about not killing the Hebrew boys. Scripture never commends them for lying. Scripture commends them for their faith. Who knows if they had perhaps told the truth, we would have seen God perform the miracle of operating even though they told the truth. I say to the students all the time, one of the reasons that so few Christians have stories of what God has done in their lives is because so few Christians are willing to take God at His word and stand on the truth. Every time we do, we face that crisis. If I tell the truth, we feel like our world's going to come to an end, you know, we're going to lose our job, we're going to lose our friends, and, we, and we, I'm just not prepared for that. And so we hedge, we dodge, sometimes we just flat out lie because we're afraid of the consequences of the truth. God is responsible for the consequences of the truth. If God's will is to speak the truth, and if God lives in me to speak the truth, then God is prepared to assume the consequences for me speaking the truth. I have to believe him for that. I worked in the gravel pit in, uh, where the rim is now for a few months after my brother had passed away. Hired on there from January to the end of May and um, made asphalt. 
or at least I was supposed to be making asphalt, never really quite learned how to do that. Um, there was just two dials on the, on the panel, one said manual, the other one said automatic, and I never figured out why sometimes they would switch it from manual to automatic, and that was my job. But I was there for those months, and, and, um, and God gave me every single day opportunity to share Christ with those men. I'd never been in a situation like that. I wasn't trying to share Christ with them. They were asking me about Jesus and my relationship with Him every day. Nine-hour shifts, sometimes four or five hours would be spent talking about what it meant to be a Christian and to know Jesus. It was really amazing. One night, I was clocking out, and, and I was with the oldest man on the crew. And um, we put our, he put his card in the time clock, and it didn't stamp. <laughs> and he got a twinkle in his eye, and he pulled out his pencil, and he had his time card, and it's just the two of us. He's the oldest man out there, and I'm the youngest. And nobody knows now what time we're leaving because we're the last two guys there. And so the time clock is not registering our time, so we can put down anything we want. And that guy gets out his pencil, and he goes, Charlie, it's like 9 o'clock right now. And he says, I'm going to put down 10 o'clock on my time clock, my time card. What are you going to put down? And see, the boss knew we worked together, we clocked out together. So if he puts 10 and I put 9, he's in trouble, and I'm to blame. And so I just felt like my, my brief life at that point was flashing before me, and it was a very quick flash. It's no longer a quick flash. And I thought, this is it. I might as well just quit right now. This man has all the seniority. They're going to believe him over me. Um, I, or I could get him in real trouble, and it's going to be bad because all these other men are going to hate me. But the Lord Jesus lives in me, and he is the truth. Any lie that comes out of my mouth is not Jesus speaking. That's Charlie McCall speaking. Because God cannot lie. It's as simple as that. See, I mean, this is one of the things that I, that I really trust that this church his hill, and my life personally is grounded in, is that Jesus lives in me not just to tell me what to do. He lives in me to live his life. And he is not a liar. He cannot will for me to do that which he would never do himself. And so if my mouth is his mouth and he speaks through me, you will never hear a lie come out of my mouth. Because Jesus is not a liar. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost is, he cannot lie. 1 John says, the Christian who is abiding in Christ cannot sin because Christ is not a sinner. It's as simple as that. So I said to that man, I figure it's all over. He said, I'm going to write down 9 o'clock on my time card. And just like that, that man smiled and says, I think I'll put down 9 o'clock too. I would have never seen what to me was a miracle if I hadn't taken the risk to speak the truth. I can think of very few of the stories of what God has done in my life that have not been a response to, by faith, 
acting on the truth of what, who God is and what He says in His Word. I think, I know, we will all, when we stand before the Lord in glory, be ashamed that we did not trust the Lord more. Every one of us is a living letter of God's redemptive power. People are reading us, wanting to see the reality of a living God. And when they see us squirm and hedge and dodge and flat out lie, they are not seeing the reality of a living God. This is why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. We ought to be the kind of people that don't need to offer oaths and vows. It's not saying we should never do that. If you expect somebody else to put it on paper and sign their name to it, then you should be willing to do what you expect of someone else. If you want the person who is testifying you to, against you in court to vow, to say the truth and nothing but the truth, then you should be willing to take the same vow. The point is not that vows are wrong. The point is simply we should not be the kind of people who need to take them in order to be believed. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was the divine law of retribution. God didn't mean this, that any time somebody hurts you, wounds you, you have the right to get even with them. I have to say that sometimes I wish that that is what he meant because sometimes revenge seems very sweet, doesn't it? I'll never forget one Easter after I'd collected all my Easter eggs and it was probably one of my last years to hunt for Easter eggs. I was probably getting too old for that. But my older brother was certainly too old to hunt for Easter eggs, so he was exempt from that. But I and my siblings, we all got to hunt eggs. And my mom and grandmother had worked over dozens of eggs, hand-decorated each of them beautifully, hard-boiled eggs. They hand-decorated beautiful eggs. And I had my basket full of my treasured eggs. I hadn't eaten any of them yet because they were just treasures. And we were in the car on our way back from Harlingen to Corpus, and um, my older brother um, grabbed one of my eggs out of my basket and cracked it open and started eating it. I was so mad. You have to understand, he was big for his age, and he was four and a half years older than me, and so I was, felt helpless to do anything. But all I can think of was, he deserves whatever I do to him. And I just stewed and stared and looked at my eggs and so mad, and well, I had two eggs that were identical. So I thought, I can give up one of these eggs. And so I just picked one of those two eggs and looked at my brother, and I grabbed that egg, and I hit him as hard as I could with that egg. And of all the eggs that my mom and grandmother made, that was the only one that did not get hard-boiled. It was a glorious day. He had egg yolk running all down him, 
And you know, it was just, it was pretty exciting. And I felt, I, I felt very vindicated and, and righteous. And my dad driving the car just looked back and saw it and just hee-hawed, ha ha that was great. You, you got what you deserved. So let's be honest, vengeance is sweet in the moment. But it is, it nullifies the heart of God. When we take the role of God, it's God's business to execute vengeance. It's God's business to take care of evil. I'm not arguing for passivity here, but Jesus' point is very clear. Even though you may have the right of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you live that way and you are robbing yourself of the heart of God because He is a merciful, loving, and compassionate God. This was meant, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was obviously meant to limit retaliation so it never exceeds what is actually warranted. We want all government to operate this way. Unfortunately, there are many governments around the world, particularly those that are more totalitarian and they're constantly trying to hang on to their power and make sure that it's never threatened. They do exactly the opposite of this. So in North Korea, if you turn to Christ, not only are you punished, but your grandparents are punished, your parents are punished, your children are punished, the entire family for as many generations as they can touch will be punished. That is not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, even if it were an actual crime. It is the definition of injustice when people are getting punished for something that you did and they did not do. That's the thing that Jesus, that the Word of God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is seeking to, to um, correct. But that's not just it. And so again, is that really how we want, do we, is that really what I want? Is that my heart going to flourish? Am I going to be giving off the sweet aroma of Christ if I'm always only concerned with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Is there no place for grace? I heard just this week a story in a, in a blog that I was reading of a young man who grew up in a Christian home and, um, and godly, godly parents. And he went out got drunk, wrecked the family car, and, um, or I guess it was his own car. He wrecked his car, drunk, and he had to call his dad up and say, Dad, I, I've had a wreck. And the dad said, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay, but Dad, I've been drinking. And then he had to sit in his dad's study, and he just cried. And he said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm ashamed. Can you ever forgive me? And he just pouring his heart out that he went out and got drunk and wrecked his car. And he was expecting his dad to just drop the hammer on him. And his dad said, after the son had finished talking and, and just apologizing as profusely as he could, the dad just looked at him and said, how about tomorrow we go out and buy you a new car? And the young man said, that's the day that I became a Christian. Because that's the day I recognized the grace of God and what it really means and how it is so undeserving. And if all I'm doing is giving an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, people are never going to know the grace of God. Jesus said, I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. So before we move on, let's just think about that statement. Do not resist him who is evil. 
In the context here, he's talking about retaliation. He's not talking about an absolute non-resistance to evil. How do I know that? Because Satan is evil. And the scripture says, resist him, and he will flee from you. So if I'm told to resist the devil, then Jesus is not telling me to never resist anyone who is evil. We understand that resistance of evil can be both passive and active. An active resistance would be I'm retaliating. A passive resistance would be I simply run away. He doesn't clarify. Jesus just says, don't resist the one who is evil. So we need to understand this in its context and all that he's saying. If I take this in an absolute sense, then I can't even tell children to yell if somebody touches them inappropriately. You can't send your kids off to school and say, this is what you need to watch out for, and it, should it happen, you tell an adult. You tell me. You, you yell. If this is to be taken in an absolute sense like that, then you can't even run away because that is resisting evil. You can't even put your hands up when somebody is hitting you because that is resisting evil. So I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind, but I want to be careful because all through these statements, the intent is to expose our hearts as being so contrary to God's and bring about the poverty of spirit that would bring us into conformity with Him. Jesus says specifically in this verse, to explain what He's saying, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now maybe I'm taking this too far, but at least it needs to be pointed out that if I had somebody up here on the platform with me, and you could, and I could illustrate what I'm doing, to hit somebody on the right cheek and to be right-handed is not possible. Because if I make a fist and take a swing at somebody's head, I'm going to hit them on the left, not on the right. And Jesus says if somebody hits you on the right cheek. So the only way for me to hit somebody on the right cheek as a right-handed man is to backhand them. And now he's talking about an insult, not an assault. So taken that way, Jesus is saying, if somebody insults you, you don't need to give another insult back. Even that is supernatural. I am not trying to minimize this, because you know what it's like. We've all been insulted. And it is just so quick and so easy just to give it right back. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. So in the context, he's specifically talking about insults, not assaults. We know that we're told to resist the devil. We know that it's a virtuous thing to tell your children to resist evil. We know that God told Joseph, take your, your wife, Mary, and the child and flee from Herod. He was resisting evil. And we have many more instances like that in Scripture where God was counseling people to get up and leave. Christians that were fleeing persecution, and they were being told to do so. It's not always wrong to resist evil in that sense. But what he is after is a show of grace. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, I think the assumption here is that 
If you went to court, you would lose because you actually have done something wrong. People that had no money, they, the judge would demand their clothing, but never their coat. And so the coat would keep them um, from being exposed as being naked, and the coat was something they could sleep under at night. So no judge had the right to demand your coat, but he could demand your clothing. And Jesus is saying, don't just give people what they deserve from you. They have a right to your clothing. Do more. Do more. My parents used to tell us growing up, whenever you borrow something from somebody, return it in better shape than what you got it. Go beyond what's expected of you. Not just the minimum. Do more than what's expected of you. That's the heart of God. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. The Romans had every road marked off in mile increments. That's why we have our roads marked off the same. It's a holdover from the Roman days. And a Roman soldier carried a backpack that averaged between 80 and 100 pounds. And they had the right to, to just stop any man and, say, and throw his backpack down and say, you're going to carry it for the next mile. And they knew exactly where the miles were because there were mile markers. And so Jesus said, if some Roman soldier tells you to pick up his backpack and go a mile, go with him too. And that didn't mean grumbling the whole way. But the point is, you're showing something that is radically different in how you're responding to injustice. This world is full of injustice. A, 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 this kind of response is supernatural. It is so uncommon as to stop people in their tracks and go, why? Why are you doing this? When I was in seminary, our first major purchase as a married couple was a car that turned out being a lemon. Oh, my word. Beautiful car. But it had everything in the world wrong with it, we found out once we got it. I was so upset. And I, I mean, even the radio, I knew as soon as I got in the car and, you know, I turned on the radio, the radio doesn't work. And the guy goes, oh, it's just probably a blown fuse. Lie, lie, lie. And so I pulled the radio out of the dash because no blown fuse. And it's rusted. The radio's been underwater. The radio is high on the dashboard. So if the radio's been underwater, the whole car has been underwater. I found out that two of the eight cylinders didn't work. It went on and on. I got to where I would turn on the, I could turn on the turn signal and smoke would come out of the steering column. It went on and on and on. So obviously I needed to sell this car because we didn't have the money to continue to fixing it. And so everybody that came by, I put an ad in the paper, people would come by and look at it, beautiful car, low price, and, I, and they go, is there anything wrong with it? Well, let me tell you. So hard to tell them the truth. I had it printed out on a three-by-five card. I had to become a half sheet of paper because, I mean, it just got worse and worse. And I would tell people, I've written down everything I know about this car, but I'm telling you, please take it to a mechanic because I don't want anybody thinking about me the way I think about the guy I bought this car from. Guy took it to the mechanic and came back and said, I've got bad news for you. It's worse than you think. Oh, my word. So I added more to the piece of paper. It gets bigger all the time. Another guy comes and wants to buy the car, and I gave him the whole sheet of paper, and I said, but please take it to a mechanic because I, I don't want you to 
think something of me, you know, because it's important to me that I operate in integrity. So he took it to the mechanic and says, I got even worse news for you. It's not been in one wreck, it's been in two wrecks. Unbelievable. And I'm sitting in seminary one day and I'm just going, God, I'm an idiot. I, I recognize it. I'm an idiot. I should have never bought this car. And yeah, the man's unethical and I hate the guy. But I just, you know, I just, I just what am I going to do? We don't have the money. I can't afford to be making repairs on this car. And I remember just coming to place, sitting in class. I have no idea what the class was about. And I'm sitting there just going, God, okay, I surrender. See, what was happening is every one of these people, was st- they were going, why are you doing this? Why are you being so honest? And that car was giving me opportunities to share my faith that nothing else ever had while I was in seminary. And she goes, what's more important to God? Having a car that functions right or having me an opportunity, handing me an opportunity through integrity to be able to be so different that people are saying, what is the reason for the difference? And I'm going, it's just Jesus. Because I'm telling you, I'm not smarter than anybody else, obviously. And it's not that I don't have a problem with anger. I do. I really don't like this guy. But it's just, if you're seeing anything different than me, it's just Jesus. And I sat there in that class in seminary and said, okay, Jesus, I give up. If you want us to tow that car everywhere that Patsy and I go for the rest of our lives, I give up. It's your problem. Thank you for the opportunity that I'm having to share Jesus with people that come by and look at that car. The car sold that day. And I did the same same piece of paper, and I said, please understand. And the guy just counted out the $100 bills. And I'm just going, okay, God, I get it. Thank you. To go the extra mile is supernatural. It is supernatural. We all say, God, I want to live in such a way that people say, what is the difference with your life? He's telling us how to live. Be the kind of person that you don't need to take a vow in order to be believed. Be the kind of person when somebody insults you, you don't respond with an insult. Be the kind of person when somebody forces you to do something that you don't want to do. Don't have a rotten attitude and do more than what was expected of you. Wouldn't we like to think that all our dealings with Christians would be this way? Wouldn't we all be of just stellar reputation if this was consistently true? In fact, just the opposite is true. Way too many times we hear people say, the last people I want to deal with in business is a Christian. Wow. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. That's a tough one because people, sometimes what they're asking is not good for them. I understand. One writer said, giving must be such as to never encourage the receiver in laziness and in shiftlessness, for such giving can only hurt. That's what we've done in this country. I would say, I hope I'm not being politically incorrect, but I think it's a pretty obvious observation. That is exactly what we've done in this country with our welfare system, where we encourage people to be lazy and shiftless. Look at the American Indian in this country. 
and how much we have harmed them by our so-called compassion. It has been anything but compassion. I worked in the housing projects in Dallas for many years, while I was, the whole time I was in seminary, and I saw firsthand the product of our welfare system, where women that were not yet 30 years old were already grandmothers, grandmothers at 30 years old, because our welfare system in the name of compassion was saying, we will give you more and more money for every child that you have. In four and a half years of working with children in the housing project, I met one child whose parents had ever been married. All the other kids, their parents had never been married. Why? You get more money by not getting married. How is that helping those children, helping those individuals? It's not hurting them. I don't think Jesus is saying be irresponsible in your giving. Do not give thought to your giving. But he is saying we should be generous people. And most of us would err on the side of being too much thought and too little giving. Give to him who asks. We don't have time to get through the rest of the passage, so I'll come back to it next week. But I think, again, if, if one thing I'm just trying to drive home, because the Lord just keeps bringing it back to me, this is a supernatural life. And if we as God people want to be the people that's, that God is seen, this is the way God will be seen. And I can't do this in my own strength. This is not me. I love revenge. I I'm, I'm, tend to be way too stingy and not generous enough. On and on. And, 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 and so this, this is meant to drive us back to Jesus, the one who never lies, the one who is gracious and not always just looking to give an eye for an eye, but he's full of grace and mercy. The one who, who elicits grace and encourages it. This is what he wants to be in you and me. And I am so thankful that because Christ lives in us, all that Jesus is saying here can be true of you and me. I'll close us in prayer. God, I do thank you for your word and for these very clear statements. I understand, God, my heart, I read these things and I just go, but, 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 but. And it's meant to stop us, to make us uncomfortable to drive us to that place of we just have to yield to you. That there's no way, God, that we can figure these things out, work through all this on our own, when what you're encouraging us to is just to come to the end of ourselves and allow your life to be reproduced in us. A life of grace, of love, of kindness, patience, forbearance, of truth, of goodness. And I pray, God, that you would just work in us, that we would have the courage to stand by faith on what we know is true. And then in that, we would have the encouragement, God, the blessing of seeing you be responsible for the consequences of the actions that you are putting on us. Thank you that we can trust you with those consequences. In Christ's name.
Amen.